Boom. Hello and welcome to the Protector Nation podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to making the world a better place, making the world a safer place by making good people dangerous. In this podcast, we're going to study and understand what it takes to protect, to protect your family, to protect your loved ones, because we all know that you have a few basic needs, food, water, and shelter, but you also have the need to protect those things in a world and society where evil runs rampant and is sometimes left unchecked. Learning how to protect yourselves and your loved ones is becoming more and more important. And so we strive to raise the level of accountability to those who would do evil on this planet by making sure that the sheep, that the flock, is more well-versed in protecting themselves and their loved ones. If that sounds interesting to you, then sit back and enjoy the show. Out. Boom! Yo, what's up, you guys? Here we go. Byron Rogers, Protector Podcast. We're coming back at you with another episode to help you be peaceful but not harmless, a little willing, capable, and prepared. We've got Scott Babb of Libre Fighting hanging with us today. How you doing, brother? Doing good, man. How about you? I'm good, man. I'm uh, I'm excited to get this episode finally done with you, man. Because uh, yeah, we've been talking about this since we met back up in uh, L.A. Yeah, yeah, it's been a minute. I because yeah, like I just I just knew when I saw the course I had to, I, we had to talk on the show, um, and. The thing is, there's so many cool people. Like when I started this whole podcast thing, I'm like, I'm gonna run out of people yeah, to talk to, talk about. And there's so many people in this industry and so many like unique insights. Uh, dude, I don't think you'll ever have a shortage on that front. Yeah, that's what I've learned, man. There's like, there's cool people I can't wait to get to. There's cool people that I like are, uh, you know, not on the back burner, but like, <laughs> you know, I, I like have a list. So. Uh, it's extremely exciting, man. So it's really exciting to have you here. Um, and I mean, my biggest takeaway probably from your class was just like we train with firearms, you got to train with it with a blade, like, like accuracy is a thing. And like, yeah, yeah. accuracy, speed, timing, range, um, power is underestimated in knife fighting. Um, and it's all perishable, just like, you know, just like empty hand skills, just like firearms, just like anything else, lock picking, you know, it's like, if you don't maintain those skills, they're going to diminish. Um, which is why, you know, depending on the situation, like when I'm working with, uh, protection agents, I try to give them a much smaller, more condensed curriculum where it's just basic skills they can work on maintaining, because I know for them, it's not their first line of defense, you know, it, you know, they're obviously trying to avoid competition. If they do, usually it's firearms. And if it's less than lethal situation, they're going to go empty hands. So the knife ends up being a backup weapon for them. So I know it's not going to be their primary tool. So I try to keep, when I train uh, bodyguards, I try to keep, keep it to the essentials as quickly as mm -hmm. possible and focus more on disabling than lethal skills. Yeah. Where I have seen uh, blade work used uh used uh, by protection professionals a lot. What I've been doing uh, is agents that travel to third world countries where they can't carry firearms. Yep. They've been coming to me uh, because they can usually get away with carrying a knife. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a, that's kind of an interesting uh, avenue. I never really anticipated going down, but uh, there's definitely a demand for it in that segment of the combatives population. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, that's because that was right where my brain went, man. Like, because when you're on the road, it's like, eh, I can't quite have a gun anywhere. So, like, you know, you get your knife and it's got to be something that's a little unassuming, you know, that they won't freak out when they see you. And even some places you you almost have to, you know, Ed's weaponology course. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, Ed's course is the best. Yeah, like Ed does a great course on sourcing local weapons or making local weapons putting a narrative behind it so that mm-hmm. you can explain if you do get caught with it. Um, that and his, uh, his organic mediums course where uh, we actually work on the dead pigs are phenomenal. Cause until you, and it is kind of morbid when you're doing it, you know, like you got this pig strung up and you're sticking this body of this pig. It's, it's, uh, it's not something you're necessarily going to feel good about doing, Yeah. but from an educational standpoint, it's, uh, it's very illuminating when you realize how easy it is to hack apart flesh with a knife. It's uh till you actually do it, it's hard to contextualize it. And so I recommend everyone do that course. Yeah. 100%. You just don't know what you don't know until you try to do it. And then your cool pocket knife. <laughs> that was like, your like you know. hands. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like I, I've had people like when Ed and I first started working together uh, in Mexico, which was uh where the organic medium stuff first started, we get people who come to us with, you know, a decade of, you know, blade training or Filipino martial arts training who'd never stuck a pig before. Mm. And the first time they sink a blade into it, you can actually see like, you know, they're kind of horrified and, uh, you know, just trying to process it all at the same time. Like, wow, that was so much easier than I expected. And, you know, it's like you gain a whole new respect for the weapon when you actually do get the chance to do that. Um, so as morbid a concept as it is, it's something that I think is really important if you're going to be really serious about learning to work with blades. Yeah, no, 100%. I, um, I have recently after taking your course and after, you know, Ed's clinic on weapons and all that stuff, I honestly, man, at this point, I could say that I'm a little bit more freaked out by a person who pulls a knife on me than a person that pulls a gun, you know, yeah, uh, it's a whole nother kind of thing. And you, I mean, there's just certain spots. If you get tagged, if they open you up, you get stabbed in the chest on an operating table and they might not be able to save you, you know, yeah. like, um, no, it's, uh, you know, there's something very visceral about a knife. You know, I, I've had guns pulled on me before and I've had knives pulled on me mm-hmm. and the knives actually freak me out more than the guns. I've only had a gun once, uh, yeah. but the um, having knives pulled on me freaked me out more than having a gun pointed at me. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just it's a whole different type of. Yeah. Thing. It just feels more, uh, you know, visceral. It's just it's, you know, it's like it, really- it feels more personal, more intense. Um, yeah, it's. uh just a different psychological thing. And it's something that I encounter a lot with like, um, you know, I get a lot of shit for people saying, you know, like I'm teaching overkill or doing this or doing that. And mm. people say I should be teaching like knife disarming and, you know, more passive knife work, how to disable someone with a knife rather than mm. use lethal force. And if you try to get away with telling someone that in a firearms course, you get laughed out of the classroom. Yeah. Like if you, you know, we're teaching a firearms course and say, okay, well, we're going to just practice winging the guy, just shooting him in the shoulder, or just shooting him in the foot. Yeah. Um, Only disarm. The, the industry would like, just think you were a, a joke, but with knife work, yeah. people are, you know, in this old school mindset of, yeah, it's a lethal force tool, but you really shouldn't use it 
as a lethal force tool, but if you're at the point where you've drawn a knife and you're actually working with it on someone, you better be in a situation where lethal force is justified because you're going to have a hard time convincing someone like, oh yeah, I pulled out this knife and I hacked this dude up. I was being very careful to miss all the lethal targets and just dice him up. It's like, if you think about what a DA is going to see, what a judge and a jury is going to see, they're just going to see you are a maniac with a knife who hacked on someone. Yeah. Either um, way. And so either way, so, you're not going <laughs> to Yeah. for context. It's like, I really feel like if you're in a situation where you draw a knife, it better be a situation where lethal force is justified. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same as like, if you're firing a gun at someone, mm-hmm. it better be a situation where lethal force is justified. Otherwise you're, you're in a really bad situation oh, and you've really screwed up. Um, but it goes back to that visceral nature of knives where people just look at knives and they're like, that freaks me out, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and then with the overkill thing too, like uh, I just realized that it was kind of necessary with regards to your speed and your accuracy and your timing. Like it seems like there's like these three variables that are always moving around. <laughs> and yeah. so if you're like, I'm just going to stab him in the neck once, bow, like, mm, you probably yeah. missed and it probably isn't enough. Yeah. You know I mean, enough to get the job done as quickly as possible. If the guy's within knife range, he's probably on top of you. Like there's so much going on. It's yeah. like, yeah, you can miss like, the artery. You could just yeah. nick the artery and they're bleeding out slow. Um, and they're beating the brakes you off you the entire time. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. Even if you do hit it, there's, you know, there's a window of time between hitting that artery and the guy losing consciousness that you've still got to contend with him. And you need to be in control of the situation during that interval. He needs to be on the defensive because now the guy's, you know, he's leaking, you know, and he knows that he's in a bad situation. So he's got nothing to lose. Um, And it just goes to the sort of old school mindset of thinking, you know, like I I slit a guy, you know, I hit a guy's throat and he just falls over dead, like in the movies. And it's a lot messier and more involved. And there's so many more variables than that. The person's heart rate is going to dictate how fast he's pumping out blood, yeah. any medications he's on, if he's on an influence of narcotics, all that kind of stuff factors in. So you can't just depend on one shot to end an altercation. Um, even with guns, you know, even yeah. with firearms, it's the same thing, you know, so it's kind of combat principles or combat principles. Chill out. <laughs> you know what I mean? it's like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> People, you know, God bless you know, them, but they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and the thing is, like in Western culture, empty hand training, you know, the combative side, like, you know, the protection agents or law enforcement, military going to use tends to evolve very quickly. Um, and, you know, there tends to be a lot of uh, cross-cultural pollination as far as like absorbing things from different systems and styles and research mm-hmm. and feedback. The same thing with firearms. It's an industry that's constantly being innovated with new training techniques, uh, you know, new professionals offering new insights. And because the knife work tends to come from a more martial arts base and less of a combatives base, there tends to be more resistance to contextualizing it into a modern setting with how knife violence unfolds in the Western world. Like if you look in the U.S., people carry pocket knives. They carry small knives. There are some parts, uh, more rural parts of the country where people might carry Bowie knives or bigger knives. But generally speaking, you're going to carry, you know, utility knife a small fixed blade knife a folding knife something small and then when you look at where most of the blade based systems uh their origins where they come from the the weapons that those systems were based around were heavy agricultural knives 
big, heavy, top-heavy knives that can hack limbs off. And so when you realize that a pocket knife isn't going to do this, that amount of tremendous damage, yeah, you've got to start, you know, reevaluating like how you're going to use it. It's like, you know, thinking that a small caliber weapon is going to have the same uh, stopping power of a large caliber weapon. Mm. Um, both can be deadly, but there are considerations you have to take into yeah. account placement when you're using them. Things like that, yeah. Round placement, you know, all that stuff starts to become more of a factor, you know, and the way you use the blade, I guess, is more of a factor, you know? Yeah, if, cool. if you try to use a pocket knife the way you would use a machete, mm-hmm. you're going to be really disappointed when, you know, you go to hack through someone's limb and you just ruin his jacket. Yeah, and he's and pissed. Guy, yeah, and the guy maybe needs a few stitches, whereas if you were using, like, a bow, like a big top-heavy knife, and you did that same cut, you would have taken the guy's limb off. And so, really, that's the perspective I come at it from is, kind of working backwards, looking at the way knife violence unfolds in the Western world, uh, looking at, you know, and I always tell people we live in a really interesting time. Uh, and that this is the first point in human history where you can go on YouTube and you can watch thousands of videos of fights, you know, hundreds of videos of, of gunfights, hundreds of videos of knife, knife assaults and actually see in real time and watch over and over again and catalog how these things happen, what trends happen, how, uh, the conditions under which things uh, unfold mm-hmm. and analyze that. And, uh, you know, up until before like YouTube and the internet, you know, if you saw a fight, chances are you just saw a fight, you know, and it's yeah. like you could make mental notes and try and catalog what happened, but you saw it in real time and that was it. It was over. Mm-hmm. Um, if you saw a stabbing, you know, it was like you saw it one time. Right? If you were in law enforcement, you might have what access to one or two videos of a knife assault, but, it wasn't something you could watch regularly. And now it's like anyone can just sit in front of their computer and watch violence unfold in real life altercations and be like, okay, that's how it happens. That's what it looks literally, like. Yeah. That's literally and, how it happens. Yeah. And so to me, that's a very important training tool to utilize from any perspective, whether it's knives, guns, uh, empty hand mm-hmm. situations, uh, multiple assailants, uh, home invasions, yeah. you know, there's footage of all of this stuff actually happening now. And so, when you start looking at that and realizing, okay, I can see how this stuff unfolds. I can see, does it happen daylight after dark, close quarters, open quarters? What, what kind of knife is the person carrying? Is there multiple assailants? Uh, how long between the point of contact and the knife coming out? Do they display the knife or do they keep the knife concealed and attack from concealment? When you start weighing how knife violence unfolds in the real world, you start to have to restructure your tactics. And that's really all I've done is just see how um knife violence plays out in the western world and adapt knife combatives to suit that and we were just in a really lucky position when ed and i first started working together and he was still active down in mexico Mm. we were working with his team down there and he was kind of spreading it throughout the military and law enforcement culture and teaching them the knife work and i went down to tj and worked with his guys and these guys would actually go out into the field a lot of these guys were the guys who put on these drug cartels they would go out into the field and actually apply these skills and bring us feedback like in real time. So we would sh- show people something. And within a few months, we'd start getting it, you know, yeah, okay, this guy did this. And, you know, we could de- debrief him, figure out what happened, figure wow. out what we had to adapt and change and refine what we were doing based on that. So we were wow. actually getting real world feedback as we were developing and adapting the system. Uh, and that in conjunction with studying video awesome. footage is what you know really helped us put the the system together. And it was just a very fortunate geographical um, 
blessing that like you know, you San Diego, yeah. where you know people felt comfortable traveling in from all over the world to train with us and kind of bring their insight and take on it. But then 20 minutes to the south is Tijuana, which you know at times is like a war zone. Yeah. And so we could start developing tactics up here with these people from around the world, then take it down to Mexico. And that was our laboratory. And these guys would go out in the field and apply it and then bring their insights back to us. We'd adapt and refine. And it was just this really fortunate geographical uh, blessing that we had to make this happen. Wow. That's awesome. And that is the genesis and the etiology of the Libre knife fighting system. Yeah, it was, you know, just making stuff work in the modern world as knife violence unfolds in the Western world. Being a relentless editor with it in terms of like, yeah, this works, but it doesn't work well enough. Or these skills work, but it's redundant. We have a better skill that works better. So why are we teaching this one? Um, And as we were building things, I was was very lucky in that I had a crew of people around me who were mostly experienced martial artists and instructors in various systems. And we could work on a technique or a tactic for like two, three months where we'd be refining it and pressure testing it. And I could just come in one day and be like, you know what, guys, I don't have faith in it, but we've been working on, forget it. And they just be like, done. And we just move on. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't feel like I would have to sell what we were doing just because we've been practicing it. And because I had this really good group of core guys around me who trusted what we were doing, mm-hmm. we were able to, um, relentlessly just take things out and just get rid of things. And I'm a minimalist in that I think the system should always be getting smaller and more refined, mm-hmm. not bigger and more complex. 100%. 100%. No, I'm the same way, man. Like, well, that's because when things get bigger and more complex, you just can't apply them. Like it briefs really well. It sounds really cool. You're on the range and it's like, then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And then like something happens, you do the first one and a half moves, you know, and then you run and then you do yeah. the one's first one and a half moves again. <laughs> and then, you know what I mean? And, yeah. Uh, and it, it's always the basics that you come back to always. Yeah, man. So that's awesome, man. And that's amazing how things in life happen and unfold that way to where it's just like, man, this is just a fortunate little bubble of time and space and we got to like maximize this trash. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> the season's I, over, you know, it's over, but it's beautiful what's going on. Yeah, and I realized like this is a once in a life, as it was happening, like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like, you know, uh-huh. we've really got to jump on this. And, you know, I just every day feel so lucky that, you know, and I hate to use the word l- lucky with stuff Not like this right. because it is such a morbid topic. Like, people were going out there and like perpetrating actual violence. It's a horrible thing. Right. Um, so I, I can't think of a better word to use than lucky or fortunate, but it was definitely a unique position we were in that, and we were able to like sort of build a system that we knew was functional because it was being used in the real world. Yeah, no, that's exact. That's awesome because it's just less theoretical, man. And that's ultra valuable. Like I, I can't say it enough, you know, and I'm going to probably keep saying it. One of the things with this world we live in now, I just want civilians and I want people to really pay attention to the people they follow and listen to. Cause you need to know if that guy's really has an understanding of what he's teaching you, or if it's just good marketing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and you know, in the combative side of things, there's some legit, legit guys who've really been there and done that and phenomenal. They know their stuff inside and out. They know the material, they've applied it. They know how to teach it. They know how to produce skilled students. 
But there's also a lot of people who are just faking it, you know, just out there talking shit. They know how to play the social media game. They look they cool. Know people's interests. Yeah. Like uh, one thing that I see a lot of guys doing is even guys with backgrounds. To- I've even seen guys with backgrounds before and I'm yeah. watching them and I'm like, bro, <laughs> <laughs> maybe for you that works. God bless you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so you really got to look into the people you choose to follow. Even if they have the cool background, it still isn't main, make them gospel and Bruce Lee, everything absorb what's useful, disregard what's yeah. useless and add was essentially your own. Anyway, yeah. sorry to interrupt you. And when you. Yeah. And when you look at Bruce Lee, you know, the most revolutionary modern martial artist in the modern world. Yeah. Like his background was he trained someone Wing Chun in China. You yeah. know, it's like he had a few years of training in China, came over here, realized he was more skilled than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then started just, you know, studying fencing and boxing and blending that with what he knew. But it's not like he's some guy who went out and studied for, you know, three or four decades and then, you know, mastered several different sister systems and trimmed it down and put this together, you know, as an old man. He was 31 when he died. You know, he started yeah. doing this shit in his 20s mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, in terms of, you know, the training he had was obviously quality training, but it wasn't like a huge quantity where it's like he'd been training for 20 years or 30 years beforehand, mm-hmm. but he had the mind for it. You know, he yeah. had real life fight experience. He was fighting in China. He knew mm-hmm. how violence unfolded. He was wicked smart. If you ever read his, his, uh, his writings, his poetry, everything he ever mm-hmm. r- wrote, you could tell he's just, uh, he was just a phenomenally inte- uh, intelligent person uh, and a naturally gifted athlete. Um, but Again, you know, it's not like he was, you know, he was out there, you know, competing on the tournament circuit or doing this. You know, it's like he just brought real world experience to it. So if you yeah. stacked his resume up as, in terms of like, you know, guys who have instructorships and, you know, multiple systems and world titles and stuff like that, his resume didn't look that impressive, but his skills spoke for themselves. Wow. Yeah. I never really thought about that with regards to Bruce, man. That's interesting. Um, well, <laughs> a few a few of the main uh intro questions we just we just started flowing there man that's good stuff that was a really i feel like that was a really chewy first quarter you know what i mean for for people to take in about night fight that's good stuff man so a few things i know that they they always want to know is who are you at your core i like to understand the man behind the work yeah you know i mean Honestly, man, I'm just an ordinary dickhead who's pretty good with a knife. I'm not trying to be anyone's yes. guru or life coach or master. Yeah. I've started to throw people out of seminars for calling me master before. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, be anyone's spiritual leader or life coach or anything like that. I'm good at one thing. I'm good at using a knife and yeah. I'm good at teaching people how to use a knife. And I don't try to be anything more than that to people, you know, um, I screen who I teach. I, like, uh, I don't put my address online. You know, I make yeah. people email me so I can do a little bit of a background check, feel them out, make sure they're okay. Because mm-hmm. knife work does attract a lot of weird fucking people. Um, I imagine. I can only but, imagine, especially with yeah. the internet. Oh, dude. You, it, every time <laughs> I open a chapter, I tell the chapter head, okay, screen people because you're going to get weirdos coming out. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, nah, it's not like that where I am. And then like three, four months later, I get, get an email like, dude, you were right. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like once I know that the people who are coming to me to learn, you know, that they're, you know, good people, they're mentally stable, they're not going to go out and perpetrate violence or they're not going to overreact to a situation. You know, to me, it's like, I'm going to show you how to be efficient with a knife. 
Um, and, you know, obviously, if I ever get the sense that someone, you know, doesn't have the character to handle those sort of abilities, I'm going to remove them from class. And I've removed a lot of people, not necessarily for that, just for different reasons, people fucking up the class chemistry or whatever. But, you know, really, it's just like, I don't try to be something I'm not. I'm good with a knife. That's all I want to be to people. You know, um, I don't, you know, want to act like, you know, I'm Bruce Lee or that, you know, I'm anything bigger or more elaborate or someone to be called sir, master, anything like that. Like, I hate that shit. I hate all of it. Um, (laughs) Good. You know, and that's basically who I am, man. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome, man. Tactical background. Uh, So... I grew up in a bad neighborhood, uh, smallest kid in a bad neighborhood, and I couldn't run very fast, so I had to learn how to fight. Back yeah. then, uh, and you got the pretty really eyes, big, man. Yeah, <laughs> kung fu movies. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, kung fu theater on Channel Thirteen. Like you know, we all watched it. We all watched. These Heck yeah, movies. bro! I love that stuff, yeah. man. Master of Flying Guillotine, Master Killer, uh, you know, uh-huh. shit like that, and then like Karate Kid and stuff. Uh, you know, I was a child of the '80s. Like I became convinced, like the answer to all life's problems were martial arts, and all I wanted to do was study martial arts uh, as as far back as I can remember. Like there's a line in Goodfellas, like where he says, you know, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. For me, yeah. it's like as far back as I can remember, I want wanted to be a martial artist. And I was raised by my grandparents. Uh, grandfather was like a World War II generation Marine. Uh, you know, they. Rah. They both working class people never graduated from high school and they didn't get it at all. Like my grandparents wanted me playing baseball, like doing little league and shit. And like, I hounded them to do martial arts and eventually they let me start doing it. Um, And I realized like, you know, as I got older, like what a shady uh, industry, the martial arts world is like, really? Oh yeah. It's, um, you know, a lot of con artists, a lot of liars, a lot of bullshitters, people lying about their resumes, a lot of reciprocal ranking where people say, oh, give me a black belt in your system. I'll give you a black belt in my system. And then all of a sudden my resume looks really impressive because I have, you know, instructorships and styles I've never studied and or minimally studied a lot of pedophiles in the martial arts world. Um, a lot. Wow. Uh, wow. And that actually, uh, <clears throat> there's a historical precedent for that. Like if you go back really? to Samurai, the samurai were all That's pedophiles. Um, they all had sexual relationships with uh, their apprentices. And if you talk to people who trained uh, throughout the you know 20th century in Japan, they'll talk about how there was still a culture of uh, instructors sexually abusing children. Uh, you get a lot of people with narcissistic personality disorder in the martial arts because all of a sudden people are in a situation where everyone's bowing to them, calling a master, Everyone's in uniform, lined up according to rank. People start acting like you have near supernatural powers. Um, And so there's a very cult-like element to martial arts. Like if you look how a cult operates and look at how martial arts uh, operate, there's a lot of parallels. And there are martial arts-based cults. There are martial arts groups that are actually on cult watch lists. Wow. Um, so this idea that you get of like the wise old master, like the Mr. Miyagi sort of thing. And the reality of what you see in martial arts is, you know, very far apart. And it's you like, just you wrecked it. the whole thing, bro. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. kill my master. Why, why, why? Like you're just wrecking everything <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, like if you look at like who the actual masters were in various disciplines, like uh, yeah. if you look at like the old Filipino martial arts masters, 
These were hard drinking, smoking, cussing, mean motherfuckers that like to beat the shit out of people with sticks. Yeah. You know, they were they were crime hard. kingpins and you know, or just the village badass. You know, they weren't some, you know, monk up on a mountain. If you look at the um the karate guys uh, yeah. in Japan in the 20th century, these guys were like hardcore fighting dudes getting in bar fights. Really? You know, like throwing down like these were guys who liked fighting. If Heck you look yeah. at Yeah, and if you look at um there's a very good book. I can't think of the title of it, unfortunately. But it's about the martial arts culture, uh, the Kung Fu culture in Oakland in the 1960s. Okay. And one of the things it discusses is that um, the, the Chinese criminal syndicates would actually bring Kung Fu masters over into Tijuana and then ship them across the border and up to San Francisco to be their enforcers. So these old Kung Fu masters around... Uh, Oakland and uh, San Francisco in the sixties, a lot of these guys actually came over to be enforcers for the Chinese mafia. And when you look at how they train their students, they weren't like, you know, building temples out in the outskirts of town and train them. They would literally like teach in basements and then they would tell their students, go down to the bad part of town and get in a fight. Like that would be their homework. Like go, really? go fight and see what happens and they make sure their students can handle themselves. And then, so like, we have this sort of, you know, so I came up with this impression that, you know, these martial arts were wise, peaceful old masters and stuff. And it's like, when you start to peel back the layers and you start to see that a lot, of, and not all, I mean, they're obviously very, you know, very legit, very wise, very um, peace loving yeah. instructors. But when you start to realize that a lot of these guys are just shady as fuck, they're criminals, they're just sort of skeevy guys. A lot of drug addicts uh, become martial arts instructors Man. and it's becomes disillusioning. And so, you know, around the time I was getting into my late teens, I started to realize like, man, martial arts isn't what I thought it was. It's not the answer to all my life's problems. Cause I was yeah. a timid, introverted kid. Um, yeah. I got bullied a lot growing up and, you know, I started to realize like, man, this isn't the culture that I thought it was. Uh, I started training at eight years old. I started wow. working with weapons at 15. Um, mm. I started teaching at 15 as well. Uh, mm. And my training partner, Paul, was the one who got me into Filipino martial arts in uh, 1992, 93. Informally in 92, I started training uh, like weekly in 1993. And Paul was the exact opposite of all this in that he didn't give a fuck about tradition. Yeah. Like um, he, was, he was a full-time instructor, but... Nowadays, it's like if you teach forms, like people think it's, oh, you're old school, you're antiquated and all that. Paul stopped teaching forms in 1992. And like it was sacrilegious, like other martial arts instructors were losing their shit every time they'd hear about him. So he'd be like, I I don't have time to teach these kids forms. I'm going to teach them how to fuck someone up in the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no katas, man. We're getting we're getting to work. Yeah, exactly. And like back like uh, and the the system that uh, we both studied first, Hong Sudo you wore a white gi. You weren't, okay. in Tang Sudo, you weren't even allowed to wear a black belt. Your, your belt was actually a midnight blue belt because they thought black was a, an impure color. Mm. Um, and Paul started wearing a black gi. And, his, and it pissed off a lot of Tang Sudo guys because they're like, you're wearing a black gi, you're not teaching forms. And they'd be like, fuck you, I want to wear a black gi. I don't like the way the white one looks. It gets dirty. <laughs> and so he's like, I'm wearing a, stop me. <laughs> you know, that, that was kind of that. <laughs> um, and he became a very prominent, very well-known instructor. He probably had more students than anyone else in, in San Diego at the time. Wow. We were running four classes a night at four different locations. Uh, each class had anywhere from 20 to 50 students in it, 30 to 40 on average. So, I mean, we were training hundreds of students a week. 
And Paul was the first one who really exposed me to like, dude, you don't have to do all this shit that you know deep down inside doesn't work. You know, you know, teach teach these fuckers how to hit someone, teach them how to fuck someone up, cut out all the bullshit. Sorry, man, I curse a lot. <laughs> I mean, you know uh, that. From yeah, time. we're I write um, big, big boys and girls. Um, so that really, you know, and I was coming from a traditional mindset. That was a very I I was the one kind of pushing back on him. I was his assistant instructor. And, I was always like, no, dude, we got to do this. This is the way it's done. He's like, why? Why do we have to do it? He's like, because some association run by guys I've never met says we have to do this. Fuck them. They don't pay my bills. They're not responsible for my student's safety. When my students goes out and gets in a fight and gets killed, it's on me. It's not on them. Yeah. Um, and that was what really started to shift my mindset. Uh, and we started, he was the one who got me into Filipino martial arts. And we were training privately two to th- three times a week under our instructor. And, uh, you know, we made a rule for each other. We're like, uh, we actually had a few rules. One was okay. we're going to keep each other honest. We weren't just going to let each other have the technique. So if we were doing a disarm or doing a technique, the other person would, you know, offer a good amount of resistance to keep each other honest. The other thing was um, we made a rule where we couldn't miss class without the permission of the other. So um, if I wasn't feeling good or whatever, I was tired or just... I'd have to call him up and be like, dude, man, I'm not feeling it. Can I get a pass? And he'd be like, are you dying? No. Fuck you. <laughs> class. Um, and so like the seven years we trained privately under our instructor, I can count on one hand all the classes I missed. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> we're really active on the demo circuit. We were doing, you know, up to two, three demos a month sometimes. Wow. Uh, we were training with live blades. I still have some small scars on my hands from machetes and stuff like that. We just pushed each other really, really hard. Wow. Um Coming from a Korean background initially as a child, I was always very comfortable with my kicks. Mm-hmm. Started to develop a hernia, and I was, wasn't able to kick anymore. So wow. that's what got me into boxing. And boxing really shifted my perspective. Um, and I tell people, if you really want to get serious about empty hand combatives training, box for a year. Find a good, ratty, tore-up boxing gym. The kind with duct tape around the heavy bags that smells like sweat and piss and blood yeah. uh with the focus mitts taped up like everything looks mm-hmm. like it's falling apart you walk in sketchy looking dudes jumping rope fucking yep. coaches screaming at people go work in one of those places for a year yeah. get your head rocked a little bit you know get get lit up learn how to fight learn how to take a punch how to give a punch mm-hmm. that'll you know it'll condition you it'll get you in great shape it will um give you a really good bullshit filter because once you boxed for a year yeah. you'll start looking at other stuff and be like dude that's not gonna work man <laughs> i know that's someone and i know that's not gonna hurt or, i right. know you're not gonna land that um teach range accuracy timing distancing and that mm-hmm. really uh that was the first time i really started to gain an appreciation for the more western martial arts i had fenced wow. in college and enjoyed it mm-hmm. but i really didn't think of it as martial arts uh but after i box for a while i revisited that and started to realize there actually are combatives applications as far as principles not obviously not fighting with a sword um so that's when i started getting into boxing i studied kung fu at that time um like i said i've been teaching since i was 15 when paul retired from teaching i took over and started teaching a class uh filtered out all the kids started working with adults nice. that's when we started putting together libre um and that came about just because my students always wanted to work knife stuff yeah and i was um I was never comfortable with the knife work I've been taught because the knife work that I've been taught didn't reflect how we sparred with knives. Um, you know, we do, we do yeah. certain amount, we do all these drills movements and that load and stuff. Then we spar and we'd like hang back, you know, cutting each other. Then when I started 
seeing how night violence unfolds in the real world, like seeing footage for the first, you know, few incidents that leaked online and started appearing yeah. and saying like, this isn't how knife violence unfolds. And my students were really fascinated with knife work. So I said, okay, guys, if you want to do knife, we're going to do it right. That means we're starting from scratch and pressure testing everything. And so we just literally started rebuilding from the ground up. Um, time I was working as a locksmith, I was on call 24 hours a day working in a lot of bad neighborhoods. I worked for drug dealers, chop shops, because they tend to be more proactive about their security so they can't go to the cops. Mm-hmm. You know, I was attacked by drunks, homeless people. Um, That's where I had a lady pull a gun on me once. She was actually one of my regular clients. Uh, incidents Boy, like- pull a gun on you. Oh yeah, it was, <laughs> um, she was always throwing her boyfriend out of the house and uh, yeah. she was a kid. And I would come over and she'd always be crying and wanting to vent. And then she's like, I just want to shoot the next man I see. And I thought she was joking because I was the only guy there. And so I kind of chuckled. She said, what, you think I'm kidding? And she pulled out a gun and pointed at me. And as much Mm -hmm. as I like to tell you, I threw a smoke bomb and ninja rolled and disarmed her. And no, it was soft skills. Like I was like, I I won't say her name. I was like, I know you're upset. I know you go through this. We go through this two, three times a year. I know he's got you upset, but you know me. You know, I'm on your side with this call. I'm oh, here. Freaking shoot me. And, <laughs> and, and, um, so I came over and hugged her and took the gun away, took the bullets out, and handed it back to her, calmed her down. Um, you go into domestic disputes a lot where you'd just be reeking a house and the neighbors would call the yeah. husband and be like, hey, dude, you better get home. She's locking you out. And the husband would show up look, wanting a fight. Um, yeah. People tricking you into repossessing cars sometimes. Really? I mean, I'm not a repo agent, but a lot of times you wouldn't know until the guy came storming out of the house. <laughs> like, what wow. are you doing? Or so, you know, it was like, uh, you know, had bats pulled on me, knives. Um, yeah. Just kind of more, yeah. just real world experience kind of thing. And when you start getting in those situations regularly, you start feeling that adrenaline dump regularly. Yeah. Um, and you start to realize like, you know, that really slick disarm that I love, I couldn't pull that it's not off. not going to work off right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And there, there was one incident where two guys uh, had baseball bats and I had a mag light and a utility knife, like a spotty daga. I mean, most ridiculous situation imaginable. Like I was literally like doing a spotty daga against two guys with sticks. Like I thought I was really going to have to fight for my life in this situation. And I was young yeah. and I was in my bunnies and my, they'd come out and, you know, threaten me and I felt, you know, challenged. So, you know, I came back and we're screaming at each other. Fortunately, one of our <laughs> uncles came out and cooled the situation down. Yeah. But what was going through my head wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that slick ass disarm and I'm going to take this dude down. Right. But, and I, I remember this so vividly. What my thought was, was why did I waste so much time doing bullshit? I knew wouldn't work. You know, all the sayas, which are forms in Filipino martial arts, all the slick disarms, all the intricate stuff. I was thinking, mm-hmm. why the fuck wasn't I spark? Why was I beating on the fucking bag with my sticks? All those fucking yeah. months and months I wasted doing stuff that deep down inside, I knew I'd never really trust my life to. And then I knew that in that state of mind where it's like your tunnel vision and your limbs are heavy and your heart's beating and you hear your heartbeat in your ears. Oh yeah. And that for me became like, if I can't perform a task or a skill in this situation, I'm not going to teach it Mm because I'm just wasting my students time. And then Ed reached out to me. Um, Ed, I wasn't super well known back then. Uh, And Ed had been uh, trying to contact uh, different knife fighting instructors in the U S to come down to Mexico. And, all these guys who were like very prominent instructors, like, no, I'm not going to Mexico. <laughs> no, no way. I grew up in San Diego. Like, if you grow up in San Diego, Mexico is your back, Tijuana is your backyard. Like, you turn 18, it, yeah. 
everyone goes down to TJ when they turn 18 till they turn 21 because you can drink down there and you yep. you party and you get into trouble and shit. So I was very mm-hmm. comfortable in Mexico. So he's like, dude, would you come to Mexico? I was like, yeah. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. Dude, I'm down to Mexico all the time. And it was funny because at the time, like Ed was still working. He wasn't the high profile person he is now. He'd never yeah. shown his face online. And we talked for about a year trying to get things arranged. And then I was doing a seminar and he just showed up and he's like, hey, I'm Ed. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're a kid, man. Like I, I literally had this image in my mind, like, cause I, I had a vague idea of what he did. You know, yeah. he probably talked about his work. I, I was literally pic- picturing Danny Trail. Like some 15 year old guy with a scraggly face, all tatted yeah, up. Just hard, you know. Yeah, he walks in, you know, young, smiling, you know, being, Spry. being yeah. that really charming, outgoing, you know, guy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you're it. He's like, dude, in my work, I'm a senior citizen. He's like, by the time you hit 30, you're either on a desk or working for the cartels. Wow. And then he started asking me, he's like, well, what would you do if the guy was wearing body armor? And I was like, oh, dude, I love questions like that. And so, we just started yeah. riffing on that in the seminar. And then like, as soon as that, after that, he was like, dude, man, let's work together. And, you know, then that's when we actually got to start training the guys down there and um, started getting real world feedback and adapting. Um, but I mean, really my tactical experience, I just, I was a kid who grew up in a bad neighborhood. I got in a lot of fights, got my ass kicked a lot. I knew mm-hmm. what it was like to like be scared when you leave your house and you see those guys on the corner that fucked with yeah. you last week. And it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Uh, you know, now I'm, you know, six feet tall, 200 pounds. People tend to leave me alone, but it was like, I was a small kid in a bad neighborhood. I got fucked with a lot. Um, and that lasted, you know, until a bit into high school. And then like, as I gained more martial arts experience and stuff, I got more confident and I started to realize that generally you're victimized because of your mindset, not your size, not, not your social status, not any of that. It's that if you have the mindset of approaching life, like a victim, you're going to be a victim. If you have the mindset that you're not going to be a victim, most people will leave you alone. They'll they sense, sense it. Yeah, they can. Yeah, you know, it. it's just an evolutionary thing. You know, animals yeah. don't attack other animals that they expect are going to fight back. They right. go for the weakest in the herd. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> That's what's up. No, I mean, you, you, there's a lot of experience there. Um, that was good, man. That was like a little journey. That was like going yeah. on a journey with you, bro. That's what that was like, man. That was, that was, that was good. What would you say about daily knife, like EDC knife selection? Uh, people are, tend to be disappointed uh, when they ask me about knife, my knife preferences and stuff, because yeah. I talk about the nonsense <laughs> or like, you know, what kind of metal do you like? You know, do you like, you know, a Tonto or a Persian or all that? And to me, like uh-huh. the most important thing for an EDC carrying knife is a knife you're going to carry every day. Like, <laughs> I knew it would be something like this. <laughs> is it's got to be a knife. Good to go. <laughs> no, you. Well, well, the thi- the, well, what I mean by that is like yeah. you, can on, you can buy some, you know, $2,000, you know, custom made tactical folder that has all the best parts and machined yeah. by a master. And it's a bitch knife. It's got but spirits it, in it. <laughs> yeah, and if it's but if it's a big, heavy, bulky knife that you get sick of having in your pocket every day, you're not going to carry it. Yeah. Uh, so the knife's worthless to you because it's not something that you're going to carry every day. Um, so for me, what I look for first and foremost is, is this a knife that's going to be inconvenient for me? Am I going to get sick of having to reach around this to dig into my pocket? Does it feel awkward? Does it look bulky in my pocket? Is it something that's a hassle to carry? Or is it something I can stick in my pocket and forget about? Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the things I like about Spider Coats is that they're thin and light. 
Yeah. Uh, so you could just stick it in your pocket and forget about it until you need it. Um, because I can't tell you how many times people, you know, show me their their knives and stuff like that. I'm like, do you carry this one? Like, oh no, 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 this is too big to carry. Or now this one's heavier. This is that. So first and foremost, the most important thing to me is: is it a knife that you're just going to be comfortable carrying every day? Which is the same thing that you think about in protection work. It's like, are you going to yeah. carry like some big ass fucking hand cannon cannon that you can't keep concealed and that you know it's just like it's a headache, you know, heavy and awkward? Or are you going to carry something that you're comfortable carrying day after day after day that can just become a part right. of your wardrobe? Yeah. Um, beyond that, I quote John Lennon: "I'm an artist. You give me a tube, I'll get you something out of it." <laughs> you know, something sharp and pointy i'll make it work yeah um but if to get into more specific stuff in an ideal situation i really want to make sure that the grip is designed so my hand's not going to slide onto the blade um yeah. either there's some kind of stop that's going to keep my hand from sliding on the blade if i hit bone or something solid uh or there's enough texture on it to really hold to my hand especially when it's wet if it's a folding knife how strong is the locking mechanism because if it's got a shit mm -hmm. locking mechanism it's worthless um, so does it have a good sturdy locking mechanism I can trust? Those are basically the three things that I really want in a knife. Is it okay. convenient enough to carry? Does it have a good handle on it that I can get a good firm grasp on it? I'm not going to lose it. And is it not going to fail on me? Other than that, I'll make it work. You know, it's like, a, yeah. you give me a pen, I can stick it in someone's eye. Right. You know, um, and like I said, people want, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I like a Persian with this kind of metal and this and that. Like, honestly, I don't give a shit about any of that. Uh, you know, um, as long as it as long as it'll pierce flesh it's and useful. not fail on me, I'm good. OK, good to go. What would you say are some of the greatest assumptions people have about knife fighting that just aren't true? The idea that there's going to be space um, that you're going to mm. square off and kind of hack at each other. Yeah. Sort of have this dueling mentality. Yeah, uh, kind of touching each other and moving around, and the thing is, like, if you in, in parts of the world, knife violence does still unfold that way. Yeah, where you know guys, you know, will square off in the street. Like, if you not so much in northern Mexico, but when you start getting to central Mexico, you'll see that guys will actually like do the old school thing where they wrap the jacket around their arms and they'll hold the knife and a point down grip, and they'll be in the street and they'll sort of hack at each other and block. Yeah, uh, and there's footage of this. You can see it online. Oh yeah. Uh, but like where we are in the U.S., you don't see stuff like that. You don't see two guys, you know, say, OK, we're going to handle this and wrap the jackets around their arm and square off and hack each other or, you know, hold their knife like in a saber grip and sit around each other and kind of touch each other. And if you did find yourself in that situation where, you know, you're six feet apart, reaching in, trying to pick each other apart, as much as it's going to damage my fragile male ego, I'm going to remove myself from that situation. Yeah, faster I'm than you, like, food pimp. I'm not going to risk the criminal liability, the civil li liability, the moral ramifications, the psychological ramifications of having to take someone's life and risk my own life just for my ego. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy for me to be like, oh, fuck this, I'm out. But given the opportunity, I'm not going to engage in that situation. Yeah. So if there is a dueling situation, that's something I can remove myself from. When you look at how knife violence unfolds, People who are willing to use a knife on you or who intend to use a knife on you generally won't uh, display the knife ahead of time. They'll get close to you with the knife concealed and they'll grab you and, sh and start shanking you. I actually went through and I watched 30 knife fighting videos. And I did, I, in one of my books, I list these, uh, I list the result findings in one of my study one of your books. We got uh, books. What was that? You got books, man. You got multiple books. You got books? Uh, yeah, I have... Uh, 
Finding Libre, which is my autobiography. I have Doubt of the Reaper, which is breaks down the system. And then in my study packages, I have Machiavellian Knife Combatives, which is more about Ooh. tactics and mindset. And then Endemic Knife Combatives, which is about adapting your training to different uh, training environments. Uh, I Doubt of the Reaper, I actually did a study where I just broke down like everything I found in, in uh, CC footage of knife work, uh, knife assault. Happened after wow. dark and daylight. Was it close quarters, inside, outside? What kind of knife was used? How, uh, how long uh, between making contact with the victim and stabbing them? Uh, mm -hmm. What grip was used? Where were they stabbed? Were they attacked in front or behind? And then I just broke down, like, this is how knife violence actually unfolds in the Western world. And if you look at how the average knife assault happens, okay. now obviously there, there are anomal anomalies. Um, yeah. It's not always going to be this way, but typically what you're going to see is if someone intends to use a knife, they're going to keep it concealed. They're not going to draw the knife and wave it around. If they're, if they're showing the knife, there are instances where the knife is shown, but it's being used as a compliance tool. It's being used uh, as part of an abduction, a robbery, a sexual assault, where they're trying to coerce something. Someone intends to stick you. They're going to keep the knife concealed. They get in close within two to three feet. Generally speaking, they'll uh, usually stab within 10 seconds of making contact. So there are situations where, you know, they'll be having a conversation, it'll get heated, they'll start yelling back and forth, then someone will grab a knife and stick them. But usually what happens is within, within 10 seconds of making contact, the knife will come out and they'll start sticking. Um, males will tend to use a knife and a hammer grip in the Western world. Females are more apt to use a point down grip. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for a point down grip actually being a lot deadlier. Males tend to attack from the front. Even if they have the opportunity to stab someone in the back, a lot of times you'll actually see they'll pass the person, get in front of them, and then attack from the front, uh, which I find Thanks, very – Yeah, and <laughs> I, I've actually been trying to deduce exactly why that the is. psychology on that is. Yeah, yeah uh, I've heard people say it's, it's a Honor. primate thing. Primates doing aggression displays face each other. Uh, one interesting theory I heard from a psychologist – I'm not sure I'd buy this, but it's, it's a novel theory – is – men psychologically have trouble processing the idea of penetrating another man from behind um, because it ties into like homosexuality on a psychological level. So I don't necessarily buy that theory, but I think it. it's really interesting. <laughs> um, but so when you start looking at how knife violence occurs, it's face to face. It happens within two to three feet and it's not dueling. It's they latch on, they grab the shirt, start sticking, grab the back of the head, start sticking, or they'll just step in, shake them once and run. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're not going to have this dueling mentality where we're facing off. So how that changes how you approach knife combatives is you have to develop the soft skills. You have to learn to do, to see like, oh, there's something shady happening here. You know, yeah. this guy, you know, I don't like the way this guy's approaching me. Learn how to draw your knife and keep it concealed uh, yeah. as, you know, as you're engaging this person. Try and maintain distance. Uh, you know, try to work around the person as you engage them like talk so you can get a full 360 degree view of what's happening. Make sure there's no one behind you. Yeah. And then um, have the knife concealed in your hand. So if he does go to access a weapon, your weapon's already drawn and you can pounce on him. Uh, you know, being aware of where their hands are, seeing if they're reaching for where a weapon might be concealed, uh, which is also going to vary depending on where you are in the world. If you look in Australia, one of the okay. common forms of attack is they'll keep the knife in their back pocket. And they'll reach out like uh, towards your left pocket, assuming the guy's right-handed. Be like, hey, man, you got some money for me? And while you're focusing on this left hand coming to your pocket, because the guy's, you know, reaching out to touch you near your grind, so you're going to be like, dude, what the fuck? He reaches back and pulls the knife out with his right hand and sticks you. 
Um, so like, um, that's a method the criminals use in Australia. You know, if you look at, you know, like I said, in Mexico, they'll do the jacket around the thing and they'll actually duel in parts of the rural parts of the Philippines. They still carry the big, heavy agricultural blades. So the endemics of how knives are used are different throughout the world. But if you look at the U S that's what's it's going to happen. The guy's going to be close to you. He's going to get close with a knife concealed or woman within 10 seconds. The knife's going to come out. He's going to start sticking you. Generally speaking, uh, if it's a male, it's going to be a stab to the abdomen or uh, the left side of the body, the lung, left side of the neck. Uh, and it's going to be prison style. They're going to latch onto you and start stabbing. Um, you're not going to see like uh, slashes, uh, you do see slashes, but if someone's coming at you trying to kill you, it's going to be um, it's generally going to be stabbing. And the reason why is because America isn't a knife culture the way other parts of the world are. So people mm -hmm. tend to use knives the way they fight. And if you look at how untrained males tend to fight, they'll latch on to the opponent with one hand and start punching them with the other. And they do the same thing when they use knives. They'll latch on with their weak hand and start stabbing with their strong hand. Mm -hmm. um, and so if your training isn't geared around dealing with that sort of assault you're not prepping for what ha the way knife violence is going to unfold where you are you're you might be training for where for how knife violence unfolds in a different part of the world but that's not going to do you any good yeah 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 uh, either how it unfolded historically or how it unfolds in a different part of the world but yeah that's not going to do you any good when someone gets in your face grabs hold of you and starts shanking you mm -hmm. and so that's the main difference is that you know the chances that you're going to have the luxury of space and being able to just cut someone's hand or, you know, give them a cut to the thigh or something. And they're going to see their own blood and stop and be like, whoa, I don't want any part of this and back off. If someone's mad enough to draw a knife on you or insane enough to draw a knife on you and be bearing down on you with lethal intent, you know, that little snap, you know, cut that you're going to do, unless you're using a heavy blade that's going to disable them, that's just going to piss them off and get them to charge you and start sticking you. And chances and, are, you're not going to have the luxury of that space anyways. And people don't know they're stabbed. Biggest... People don't it? even know they're stabbed half the time until the thing's over. Or people don't even know well, they're shot half the time. Yeah, the thing's... Well over half the time. Every <laughs> summer I've ever done, I always ask, has anyone here ever been uh, cut or stabbed in the street before? Yeah. There's almost always one or two. And over 90% of the time when I asked them, did you know it? They'll say, nah, man, I just thought I got hit hard in the side. And yeah. after it was over, I lifted up my shirt found two holes there and the people who did get cut like uh and knew it yeah. they didn't know because they felt pain they knew it. they they saw the blade and they saw the blood mm -hmm. um i've had people get cut all over their hands and arms before and i asked mm -hmm. him did that inhibit your motor function in your hand and I'm like during the fight no i was like so you could still use it you could still hit hold things are like oh yeah man i was grabbing on the fucker's arm while i was bleeding oh, uh, yeah. so that makes you revisit the idea of slicing someone's arm to disable them and again, this is endemic. If you're in the Philippines where you're carrying, carrying a big, heavy agricultural blade and you hack someone's arm, yeah, that's a highly effective skill because you're going to wreck that arm. It's going to be destroyed. Yeah, but if you pull out a little pocket knife in winter in Chicago and go to slash someone's arm, you're just going to ruin their jacket, you know, because they're wearing these big, heavy winter coats. Um, you know, if they're wearing a leather jacket and you go to slice that, you're not going to disable their arm. And even if you, their bare arm, if you're using an average pocket knife, unless you get a good deep cut to the underside of the arm that really severs the major tendons in there, you're not going to inhibit their motor function enough to disarm them. Mm. Um, and that, that's, and, and it's not saying those tactics aren't effective. They're very effective from the culture they stem from and from the environment they're in. But in the U S 
it's not necessarily the ideal way to approach the situation. And so, you know, that that's the biggest misconception is that, you know, it's going to be a duel and it's not, it's going to be a fight. It's going to, you know, as far as the, um, the physicality of it, it's going to feel more like a street fight where, you know, you're wailing on each other and fight, you know, fighting, except now it's, you know, lethal intent because when you get stuck, you could die, but it's going to be that sort of close quarters, Thing where you're you know slamming into each other you're wrestling around you're pushing each other back using walls uh people are slipping falling down it's going to be chaos um and i think a lot of people don't factor that in like how i i don't like having my guys spar on an open floor i put them in a storage closet and make them spar in there because that's going to simulate the uh the range and the aggression you're going to be dealing with uh in a street altercation you know, because if you're in a six foot storage closet, the furthest you could be from someone is just out of range. Right. So if you're not being aggressive, you're you going to get over. You have to and control so, the space. <laughs> yeah. And you're learning to deal with that level of aggression. Yeah. Um, and so I'd rather have someone go in there and spar for 20 seconds and just learn to, you know, manipulate that chaos than have them sit out on an open floor and just duel with each other for, you know, a five minute session. I think, I think it, emulates the real life violence better um yeah yeah and and i always feel it's important to say this i'm not writing gospel here these are just my opinions um and people are free to disagree with me there are a lot of very talented very uh skilled martial arts instructor skilled knife combatives instructors who have different opinions on this stuff i'm not saying they're wrong this is just you know what my research and my experience has taught me yeah, no, that's awesome. And that's what we're here for, man. That's that's good stuff. It's it's a good perspective though, man. You've definitely done you've done a lot in your life with this work. So it's it's good to download this info from you for sure. Uh what would you say the hardest lesson you've learned on your journey or with regards to knife fighting would be? As far as being the head of an organization, it's learning that people just aren't gonna get along. <laughs> you know, like yeah, uh, they're just not, yeah, it's managing personalities is like part of the thing. Yes, and that is so much harder for me than anything else. Like when it comes to teaching seminars, writing books, making DVDs, yeah. all that stuff comes very naturally to me. That but when you have an international organization and understanding, you know, people come from different cultures, different backgrounds, people will say something uh innocently but someone from a different culture will take offense to that because in their culture it's considered rude people from different parts of the political spectrum people um people uh you know with different religious beliefs and they're all going to collide and trying to manage that was the hardest thing for me uh when it comes to knife combatives the hardest thing that for me the hardest lesson i had to learn was it's okay to look at the way I was trained coming up and look at things that are just considered, uh, this is just how it's done. This is how it's always been done. To have the balls to look at that and be like, yeah, but it's wrong. It doesn't work. Or there's a better way to do it. And just giving myself permission to let it go, Uh, which seems simple, but since I grew up in a traditional background and I still have a lot of respect for my old teachers and the way they do things, and I still love traditional martial arts, to just be able to say like, yes, I love that. I appreciate that. And, uh, I appreciate the roots where this comes from, uh, but I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to advocate it anymore and just kind of let the chips fall where they may. And I'm a person who believes that traditional martial arts does still have a place in the martial arts world and that 
it's important that even people on the combative side of things like me, it's important to see where these principles came from the same way it's important for musicians to study classical music. Um, you know, to say like, oh, well, Mozart doesn't count anymore. Bach or uh, Brahm, all those guys, they don't count anymore. You know, I'm going to study, you know, you know, more modern artists. You know, I think, you know, you know, the Backstreet Boys is more relevant than than uh, Mozart and stuff like that. It's just a really ignorant Dangerous. sort of mindset yeah. to come with. So even though like a lot of stuff you see in traditional martial arts doesn't translate to modern society well, I think it's important that these arts are preserved so we can look at the culture and the background and the mindset and see how techniques evolved and still be able to draw from that collective knowledge. So a lot of people think I'm anti-traditional martial arts because I don't teach traditional martial arts and that's not the case. I, I think that it's very important that those stay preserved. But that being said, I don't do it. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that's someone else's job. Someone, it's someone else's job to preserve that. That's not the world I work in, but I think yeah. the work is still important. And for me, that okay. was the hardest thing to reconcile mentally. Outstanding. Okay. What would you say is your proudest moments on your journey? Proudest, proudest moment, you know? Uh, probably. On the path of the blade. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, I, I would love to say it was something more intellectual than this, but yeah. really the first time I taught in London. Uh, really? Where it was like, you know, I actually like, because I didn't set out with the intention of growing Libre into an organization, let alone an, an international organization. You know, I took up martial arts just because I was tired of getting my ass kicked. So this wasn't a path that I plotted from childhood. Um, but when I was just sitting over there in London, after did a big seminar over there, we had like 53 people show up, um, had people coming from Ireland, Finland, um, Scotland, had some people come over from Japan. I was in my early thirties at the time and I did this seminar and it was great. And, you know, I was on this like total high and I was also, um, completely jet lagged. I hadn't been sleeping. Uh, it was the first time I'd traveled internationally and just realizing, man, I'm in London and I just taught people from all these different countries came to learn from me. It was just this sort of surreal moment where it's like, fuck man, how the fuck did I end up here? Yeah. And then the second time I went back to London, I was staying at this flat, uh, I was on top floor and there's a balcony and it was raining and I'm from Southern California. So I never get to experience rain. So anytime it rains, I like, oh, yeah. I was just sitting yeah. out the balcony and I was listening to the Smiths and it was raining. And I was looking out over the London skyline and I was just like, fuck man, fuck. This is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that for me was like the biggest mind shift for me. And I was like, fuck man. And I, I've had lots of big moments like that. Um, yeah. like, uh, Ed and I did a seminar in Mexico City where we had over 90 people show up and wow. like uh and it was just fucking chaos. Um but um and that was another mind-blowing sort of moment. But being in London was really what did it. And then uh also when we took Libre to Southeast Asia and we saw it taking hold in Southeast Asia in wow. the Philippines and Indonesia and seeing the Indonesian special forces training Libre and seeing the intelligence units in the Philippines training Libre and realizing like, man, we, we took our knife fighting method and took it back to like the cradle of knife arts. And it was accepted and embraced. And that for me too, was just sort of a mind blowing moment where it was like, really? Validating bro. It's very validating. (laughs) 
Yeah, it, it is. Um, <laughs> it kind of puts things into perspective, and you start to feel a. And there's two ways to go with it. You can right. either let your ego take control and be like, "Fuck yeah, man, I'm the man," or you can yeah. think of it as, "Man, I'm responsible for this." So they said, like, "Better not mess this up." Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, dude, there's people counting on me now. Uh. And for me, it's like there are lots of people around the world who make their living in part or in whole from Libre. Mm. Um, wow. you know, they're working with military or private security groups, or they're just they have martial arts schools, and Libre is a big part of the program. Wow. And you start to realize, like. If I fuck up, it's not just on me. It's on all these people who have tied themselves to me. Yeah, um, who believe in I'm you. I'm responsible for all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very easy when you start to get recognized uh, in a combative type industry to let your ego get away from you and think you have all the answers. And so for me, it's very important to always keep that in check. And have people around you who you trust, who, you know, will keep you grounded, who will challenge you. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I'm an amateur student of Machiavelli, but it's something I study regularly. I've read The Prince at least a dozen times. Uh, And this is one of the things that Machiavelli talks about is it's important for a leader to have people around him who he trusts, who will give him sound advice and let him know when he's fucking up and not fear repercussions from that. So that's something I always yeah. try to keep in mind is like, I have to have people around me who, you know, are doubters. They'll say like, dude, I'm not sure about this or dude, why are you doing this? Or dude, explain this to me or dude, you're fucking up. Yeah. And be able to stop and be like, okay, you're, you're right. Or be able to be, or to be able to objectively look at their, their advice and look at your own and be, be like, I think I'm right on this one and be willing to mm. be wrong about it. Yeah. Uh, and tell people like, Hey, I respect your opinion. I see where you're coming from and you might be right, but we're going to move ahead this way. And if it fucks up, it's my fault mm-hmm. uh, and accepting responsibility. And so yeah. for me, it's very important to make sure your sense of responsibility outweighs your sense of ego. Yeah. Um, I'm a big proponent of service oriented management, thinking, having the mindset that it's a manager's job to make uh, his subordinates jobs easier. Like I, I try to think of it as I work for my chapter heads. My job is to give them the tools to be successful. I'm not, you know, the master up on the mountain and all these guys are serving me, you know, and I'm, I'm the king and they're my subjects. I really try to approach it from the mindset that, you know, my job is to empower them and make them successful. And if things aren't going well for them, that's on me. Cause I'm failing at my job. Yeah. Awesome, man. That's awesome. <laughs> you said it all right there, man. Uh, right before our closing questions, one last action question I was wanting to ask you. I forgot to ask you because we like didn't even go on the script. <laughs> um, someone pulls a knife on you. What are your primary considerations? What are your thoughts initially? Escape. You know, because uh, the thing about knife work is even if you're really, really good, even if you're far more skilled than the person who pulls a knife on you, mm-hmm. all it takes is just one lucky cut to an artery. And it's like, <sighs> you might die first, you might defeat him. But if you bleed out, you know, three minutes after he goes, you're not going to feel really good about yourself. Right. You know, your family's not going to feel good and be like, oh yeah, he died. But at least, you know, the other guy died first. Um, you know, try, you know, having the mindset that this isn't a situation I want to be in. Yeah. If I'm in a situation where I'm, where I have a knife drawn and I'm sticking someone it's because every other Avenue was exhausted. And it's, 
because either I failed to see it coming, I failed to remove myself, uh, I was unable to remove myself, or shit just escalated so fast, I have no choice but to to have the knife out and in play and be working with it. Um, Because like I said, all it takes is just one one lucky shot. You know, the guy just flails wildly in in a way that I'm not predicting, and he cuts my artery, and now I'm dead. So I don't want to be in that situation. But if you get to the point where... um, it's knife on knife violence, taking an eye. I, you know, the first thing I teach students is attached to the face and eyes. And this tracks back to the work we did in Mexico. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You were at the seminar, you know, like we spent the first half of the seminar just attacking the face like, and really eyes. the eyes. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why is when we start getting feedback in Mexico, like the, the eye attacks were always part of the curriculum, but it wasn't something I used to stress a lot. Uh-huh. But when we started working with guys in Mexico, what we found was, even the lethal shots didn't immediately take someone down. But when you hit their eye, they dropped like a stone. Um, and the priority isn't taking the other person's life. It's to neutralize the threat. Um, and, it's you know, an eye shot is, is going to be less lethal. I hate to use the term non-lethal. Um, mm-hmm. You can go for an eye shot and he moves weird and you hit an artery and now he dies. But, you know... Generally speaking, it's going to be a less lethal shot. It's going to end the altercation quickly, or at least stun them enough to remove yourself from the situation. And it's immediate. It's not like hitting an artery where the guy fights and then looks down and sees blood and freaks out. And then he starts to go into shock and you're dealing with this. It's like you hit the eye, the guy clutches it, falls to the ground. And, you know, you you can can make decisions. If you have to press the press and keep attacking, you can. If there's a secondary opponent, you can move on to them. You can find an avenue of escape. Um, And that's, you know, that's, as much as I would like to have some sort of, you know, very involved tactical insight as far as like, you know, have some acronym that I could break down, like, you know, yeah. hit this point. SARS, strike, arrange. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, we got to go yet. Yeah. To, to <laughs> me, it's like my initial response, if, if shit's jumping off, if the violence is going to happen, is I want to stick the knife in their eye. Um, and when I train on my own, on my Bob mm-hmm. dummy, that's what I work more than anything else. Like I am very, very comfortable with the idea that I could stab someone in the eye. Um, and that's based on the fact that we had people who did it, who cut people's face, who uh, hit their eye. And we know the feedback was they dropped like a stone. We did have one incident where some, where a dude stabbed someone in the eye and there was no reaction at all. Um, and it actually happened when Ed and I did that seminar down in Mexico city, the incident happened the night we landed, we weren't there. But a guy was out of his Libre class and two guys went to mug him. There was a big guy and a little guy. And the big guy was just apparently completely drugged out of his mind. It was like a zombie. And so he walked out and the, where they hold the class is a bad neighborhood. A lot of muggings happened there. And they, they, you know, they got in his face and he pulled out his knife and stuck the big dude in the eye. And the guys were, and just was so drugged out. He didn't even register it. And so he just shoved that guy and the little guy saw what happened. and was like, fuck, I want no part of this. He ran ended up coming back, grabbing the guy and getting off and dragging him off. Um, but, you know, we were teaching a seminar with some of the senior students there and they're like, what do we do in that situation where our dude's just so drugged out, even stabbing him in the eye doesn't register. So we actually got to dissect that on site and we're like, stab him in the other eye, make sure he can't see you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but other than that, like every incident we've had where the face or the eyes was attacked, the people just dropped immediately. Um, so to me, that's the sort of, you know, basic principle where it's like if you want to get good at really one thing 
master attack in the person's eyes because that's what's going to end altercation quickly. Um, and once you get an eye, if you need to move on to lethal force, they're going to be incapacitated enough that you know they're not going to be able to mount the same kind of defense they could otherwise. I said I wish I had something more involved, but really that's it. No, Take- that's wisdom is generally simple, just not easy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, eat less than you you know yeah. eat less calories yeah. than you burn. You'll yeah, lose you, weight. It'll be great. Lose weight, some grilled chicken. Well, I don't want to eat grilled chicken every day. Yeah. Well. This wow. is what works. Yeah. Start jogging and eat some grilled chicken. You'll be good. I wish I wish it was sexier, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what's up, man. Um, favorite quote, mantra, saying? Anything from The Prince uh, by Machiavelli. Um, oh, yeah. Some that, some that come to mind right away are um, one needs to be a fox to recognize the traps and a lion to, uh, to fend off the wolves. Yes. And I think that's this is something that the, the empty hand combative side of things, the firearm side of things has really gotten good about is developing the soft skills. We're going to mm-hmm. see trouble coming, how to circumvent that uh, problem or stack the odds in your favor right from the beginning. Something you don't see a lot in bladed combatives though, where it tends to be just about putting the knife into the opponent. Um, to me, it's important to start to recognize like, okay, situation's about to jump off, controlling the space, finding your you should already know your avenues of exit, ideally, but orienting right. yourself towards so you can get to an exit. Seeing is there a threat, you know, is this is this guy looking off to the side at someone else to see if he's circling around you, controlling the situation? That's the fox side of things, you know. Mm-hmm. The wolf, the um, lion side of things is if shit does jump off, can you handle it? Can you fight your way through it? Um, there's... Um, Another quote by Machiavelli that I love is um, he just posted it the other day and I'm drawing a complete blank. All courses of action are risky. Yes. Prudence um, then is not in. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, develop the strength uh, to do bold things, not the strength to suffer. Exactly. Um, yes. Which is a mindset that I think a lot of people don't have where it's like, you know, it's going to be hard either way you go. If you choose yep. not to do something with your life or in a combative situation, if you choose not to fight back, you know, if you just don't have it in you, you might think that, yeah, it's going to be easier on me if I don't engage with this. comply. But, you know, that the strength of fear, but the suffering that you're going to encounter being a victim or not just embracing your life and doing what you want to do with your life. Like, you know, if, if you want to be an author, you know, it's like, sit down and start writing a book. Don't be like, well, I don't think I'm good enough yet. Or, you know, it's so hard to make it or something like that. You don't want to be an old man being like, man, I wish I had at least taken a shot with it, you know? Um, So for me, it's that idea of like, don't develop the strength to suffer and don't develop the strength to give up on what you want in life. Develop the strength to fight through the adversity, you know, and that applies both just in how you live your life. And like I said, I'm not a life coach, this is how I feel about it. But also in combatives, like uh, if I'm in a fight, whether it's a fist fight or a knife altercation, what it is, I don't want to just show up and cover up and take my beating and be like, okay, well, if I cover up, you know, I'll get some bruises, but I'll, I'll get out of this. Okay. And I'll heal. I would rather go down fighting. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm outmatched, I would rather make sure that fucker never forgets me. Um, you know, I'll rip his eye out. So at least he has to wear an eye patch, you know, Mm -hmm. develop, you know, just having that mindset that, you know, I'm going to develop the strength to fight back, to do what I want, not, not develop the endurance to just be a victim my whole life. So anything in the prints, I mean, to me, that book cover to cover is just gospel. And 
I think a lot of people misunderstand what The Prince is because people who've never read it tend to think like, oh, you know, the whole Machiavellian philosophy is, you know, when, when at any cost, it doesn't matter. And that's not at all what the book is. The book is a guide for how to make decisions when there's no good path in front of you. It's a guide to how to make impossible decisions. Um, about strategy, like people talk a lot about, you know, Machiavelli, you know, making an example of people who betray you. Uh, but he also advocates forgiveness. You know, he says, if someone commits a minor infraction against you, forgive them, let them back in because they'll go out of their way to display loyalty to you. Um, he well, talks he about the power too, man. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks about the idea of caress or kill uh, and nothing in between. And by caress mm-hmm. or kill, that's like your enemies fucking destroy them. You know, obviously in modern society, we're not going to actually murder someone, but you know, the people who are against you annihilate them, but the people who treat you well, you need to treat them well and make them feel appreciated yeah, like, at all yeah. times and look out for them and protect them because that's rare. And that's the part of the Machiavellian philosophy. I think people miss out on is it's not about success at all costs. It's about how to succeed when there's no good path forward. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. I, uh, I agree. You make me have to go on ahead and get back into my Machiavelli phase, man. <laughs> I was all up on it for a minute. And then, yeah, I haven't gone back there for a while. I was, I had that itch yesterday. That's why I posted that quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. Yeah. It's like yeah, on my like website. A- I wrote a whole book that, you know, that's in one of my study packages. Uh, mm-hmm. It's Machiavellian knife combatives. And it's just taking Machiavellian philosophy and applying it to a combatives mindset, the way that wow. you would with the book of five rings or the art of war. It's like taking wow. that Machiavellian philosophy and actually applying that to how to survive an altercation or how to control a situation. Okay. Awesome, man. That's good stuff. I'm about to check these books out. Maybe do have you back on to do a review, like a book review or something. Yeah, like I'll, I'll get some stuff out to you. I'll, I'll, I'll send you some stuff. You can check it awesome, out. Awesome, brother. Thank you. That'll be good. Um, a habit that you think can help people that you'd like to pass them, daily life habit, whatever. Um, really, it's just having the mindset of, of flexibility. You know, mm-hmm. um, people tend to fall into patterns and just embrace those patterns. Like there's a saying in business, the most dangerous words are, this is the way it's always been done. Um, you know, and just knowing that just because something you've been doing for a long time works and rejecting anything out of hand, constantly questioning everything you do, um, admitting that you've were doing something in a less than ideal way or what you're doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, to me is like the most important thing for growing as a person, for being a leader, to developing your skills, uh, anything really. Uh, and secondary, never use post-it notes. It's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave me. And I Really? I, Why? So when I was in my early 20s, um, I was a delivery driver. I got promoted to recruiter. Then eventually um, into branch manager, I was managing San Diego branch and I was managing the Riverside branch by proxy. I had 80 employees under me in San Diego, another 50 in Riverside. But the guy who was the branch manager when I came into the office had a policy where he wouldn't order post-it notes for us. And he told us, if I see a post-it note on your desk, I'm going to shred it. I don't care what's on it. I will take it off your desk and shred it. And his thinking was this, this is the most 
unorganized way to keep information where you're just writing things on a little sticker and putting it on something. Then you're putting other stickers on top of it and then you peel, peel it off and throw it away. Then you realize you just didn't <laughs> need that information or it falls off your computer screen behind your desk and then you can't find it. And so what he did was he would get all of us notebooks. And when hey. he, he would, we would write the date that we started keeping our notes in this notebook on the cover okay. and page after page, we would, everything that you would put on a note, put on a post-it, we would just write in the notebook until it was full. Then when it was full, you'd write the date that you ended on it and then you'd put it in your file cabinet. So every piece of information you ever needed was saved and cataloged in a notebook that was sorted by date. So it'd be like, oh man, I need to call that distributor that I talked to two years ago. I can't remember his name or his phone number. You could be like, okay, go back two years. Here it is, bam. And it was such an effective thing. To this day, I won't have Post-it notes around me. And when I took over the branch, I told my people the same thing. I'm like, hey, Post-it, the Post-it uh, rule, still in effect. If I see a Post-it on your desk, I'm taking it from you. <laughs> um, and like, it's just such a simple, basic thing. But it's just the idea of just simple organization. Um, yeah. And like I said, okay. I know it's just a stupid thing, but that helped me be more organized more than anything else ever. Wow. That's awesome. Okay. Noted. That's a good one. Uh, what are you up to these days and where can, where can people find you brother? Uh, so things I got going on, um, doing a knife collaboration with JB knife and tool. Um, okay. I got the prototype okay. now, uh, we're just pressure testing it, you know, sticking everything we can find with it, making sure the design's perfect so far. I'm loving it. Really? Uh, yeah, I, right, that that's it there. There it is. Um, I've already put it through soft body armor, I've stabbed some wooden posts and stuff like that. So we're going to be doing lots of stuff with that. I'm doing, um, collaboration with, uh, Carlos Romanos who runs our, uh, Philippines chapter. Uh, he's also the founder of Carlos Romanos stick fighting and Lee Morrison. We're doing an online seminar thing. Uh, we're each going to do a segment. We're going to do it three, three different times, uh, throughout the day. So people in different time zones can train live with us. Uh, and it's going to be over the course of three weeks. So, uh, Carlos will go first. He'll do his, Lee's going to go second. Lee Morrison of urban combatives, uh, nominal, uh, empty hand instructor. Just, I've done a few joint seminars with him. He's, he's just an amazing fighter and an amazing teacher. You got to hook me up with this guy, man. Oh, dude, if you get the chance, um, if you get the chance to interview Lee, um, you definitely want to, he's, uh, uh, He his background is he worked the doors in London and like you know soccer hooligan bars and shit. He went out and he trained with like all the biggest names in the industry, brought that back, worked the doors, and actually just pressure tested everything every night and developed urban combatives. Very Hmm. intelligent, very uh very skilled public speaker, phenomenal teacher. Um he's he he's how he affected me by the first seminar we did, he was such a good public speaker. Uh-huh. It motivated me to go out and start doing Toastmasters for a year to develop my yeah. own public speaking skills. Wow. Um, it's a great interview. Uh, really just a good guy. So he's doing a segment on empty hand combatives. Uh, I'm doing the knife work. Uh, and Carlos okay. is doing um, the stick work. Then uh, next batch yeah. of uh, guild packages, my study packages. I'm putting those up later today for pre-order. Okay. Um, and on Wednesday nights, I've been doing live training sessions during the quarantine. Oh, okay. Um, I can't classes. Yeah. On uh, Instagram at 6 p.m. Pacific time, every Wednesday night, uh, I do a live training session where anyone can just hop on my feed 
and we do a live workout together. Um, nice. And I plan to keep doing that for as long as the quarantine's going on, just to kind of keep everyone's skills up and sort of give people the habit of congregating, even if it's virtually and training together. Um, I've done eight so far and I'll keep doing them as long as it's going on. And then my website is uh, librefighting.com. And for social media, I'm on YouTube, Facebook, but I'm most active on Instagram. Yeah, something about Instagram. <laughs> That's what's up. Well, send me those links, man. Send me links for all that stuff. We'll put it in the article. You guys check below if you're watching this. Uh, we got all, we're going to have all Scott stuff down here, man. So, bro, it's been amazing. I learned a yeah, whole man, lot love- more even just talk with you. So, thank awesome, you for man. coming. Looking forward to getting back up to LA so we can do another one up there, too. Heck yeah, 100%. Let me know. I'll come back out, man. We can hang for sure. Do a a part two to that review. And if you guys don't know, I did a review for uh, one of Scott Babb's first uh, level one knife fighting courses. So that's on the website under the tactical reviews and all that stuff too. So you guys can go check that out. Uh, get like that and get get that first person view on it as well, man. So that was really well done. I really enjoyed it, man. I love the way you guys put it together. Wow. Thanks so much. That means that that means a lot, man. Heck yeah. All right, y'all. Well, until the next podcast, you guys, thanks again, Scott, and we'll see you on the next one. Remember to be peaceful, but not harmless. Out. Boom. Boom. Yo, what up? I hope you guys really enjoyed that episode. Hey, listen, in order to get more out of the brand, I want to encourage you to go join us on our social media platforms and join us at protectornation.com. We post different types of content on our different platforms at different times. Uh, You'll get blog posts, you'll get videos, you'll get real world combat engagements and things like that. So stay plugged in in order to get the most out of the brand. In order to support us, also go to protectornation.com and buy something or join forces with me on Patreon. You'll scroll down the homepage and you'll see the link. Uh, Anything you can give counts, you know, think about whatever you would lose in your cushions or like spend on McDonald's this month, five bucks a month, whatever it is. Uh, That helps. That helps us make the world a better place by making good people dangerous. Anyways, this is Byron Rogers, protector by nature and by trade. And I'll see you on the next piece of content, whether it's a video or podcast out.